Hey guys, you're listening to the Tasha Labs podcast, and today I want to talk about two things. First of all, I want to talk about tokenization of traditional businesses or Web two businesses because I believe this is going to be a main driver of the next stage crypto adoption for the next cycle, whenever that will be. And also, this is going to help traditional businesses to reduce cost, to increase profit, and to improve value distributions and to generate new values、uh, from their businesses. I know I'm making this sound seems too good to be true, but hear me out in a moment, okay? So I recently wrote about this and got some interesting and uninteresting questions on this topic. So we are going to answer some of them today. And secondly, I also want to tell you, share with you some thoughts on investment personalities and risk management. And also, this is in corresponding to some of the questions I'm getting on previous YouTube videos. Okay, so let's dive in. So first of all, tokenization. I wrote about recently that I really believe the next wave of crypto adoption is going to At least a part of it is going to come from utility tokens that are created by real businesses. In other words, businesses that actually have a products and services that people want to use and want to pay for, and they actually have a viable business model with or without token. So I believe these going to be the driver, or at least a driver, for the next wave of crypto adoption.、And、I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, but. Basically, how these utility tokens work. There can be various ways, but one of the ways is you can think of it as a liquid loyalty program for a business. So the business will have a token that to incentivize a certain type of user behavior, and users get rewarded with this token, which they can exchange for monetary value on the secondary market. And there will be transactions going on on the blockchain in centralized or decentralized exchanges, and、uh, these token values will be directly and indirectly tied to the performance of the project or the company or the product. Okay, so you can think of one example that I gave in the article is、um, if you think of the、uh, loyalty loyalty tokens or lo、uh, loyalty points traditionally. In like,、uh, for example, credit card points or airline miles, right? Airline miles is actually a pretty good example because that is a loyalty program that has been used very widely in one industry to incentivize more usage from users, right? But if you look at the business models of these traditional royalty programs, they loyalty program, they're really a differentiated pricing. Business model is basically charging different prices by different, you know, usage usage tiers. So if I have higher demand and I intend to use more air travels, I get lower price. And if I don't travel that frequently, I pay higher price. So the airline miles is a mechanism that provides the airlines. A way to do these differentiated pricing based on the characteristics of the 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 of the customers, right? So this type of business model has been working for a long time in different industries. But once you actually tokenize your loyalty program, what will happen is you suddenly give. A bunch of things suddenly changed, but basically the most fundamental thing is you suddenly have the possibility of this token being traded on the secondary market. In other words, that people can earn the tokens and、uh, right away sell it for another currency, like a U.S. dollar stablecoin, so on and so forth. Right. So what happens is instead of differentiated pricing, you are actually give. Everybody, all the customers, the same level of pricing, except at a universal discounted level. Because if I don't earn, think of the airline, right? So if the airline suddenly give liquidity to to their tokens,、uh, to to their、uh, loyalty programs, allow it to be traded on the secondary market, which is you know 
a what token does for you, right? So if that happens, then overnight, if I want to pay cheaper airfare and I don't have any airline miles, I can just go on a centralized or decentralized exchange and buy some, right? So at the end of the day, in the equilibrium, you are giving everybody the same level of incentive regardless of their volume of purchase. So then the question is, why would you want to do that? Because that differentiated pricing is actually a allows you to have a higher profit given the condition that your demand does not change, given everything else equal. Okay. So what's the benefit of tokenization? So I think the benefit of tokenization from, you know, there, there, there are several, right? First of all, it is a much better incentive, much attractive incentive compared to a loyalty program that I cannot trade or cannot have any immediate liquidity out of it, right? Or I cannot uh, send it or, or uh, buy it or sell it to someone else. So once you have that secondary market liquidity, you, it's a much bigger incentive to the users. So you can see the power in a lot of Web3 projects, but as I talked about in previous episodes, most of Web3 projects, they don't really have a viable underlying business or a product or services behind. That's the problem, right? But for a business, but at least, you know, the Web3 business, what they show you is how powerful having a liquid tradable token, a utility token um, would do to your growth. So because this is a much more attractive, much more powerful incentive for your users, what you are, uh, the goal you're hoping to achieve is through tokenization and giving people liquidity to the loyalty points, you attract more users and you attract higher usage from the same bunch of users. So that will help you to grow your sales, grow your earnings. Uh, and in other words, other things are not equal once you give liquidity to your tokens. So that's number one. And number two, also it's a way to give user discount incentives without actually using as much of your hard cash from your company treasuries. So an example I gave is in the early 2000 when PayPal just started. They actually gave everybody who signed up for a new account hard cash. I don't remember what it is, but at some point, I, it's like a, it's, it's not a small amount. It could, you could get, uh, I believe, for a while, $100 by signing up for a PayPal account. And that is obviously a huge expenditure on the company's part. Think of if you are going to onboard a million users and you give people, you know, even just $5 a person, that's already $5 million for your marketing expenditure for this one initiative alone, right? That's a lot. And that's a marketing tactic that can only be employed <laughs> by startups that have huge financial backings, either from their venture investors or, or their own founders who already made a ton of money from other ventures, which is the case with uh, both are true for the founders of PayPal, right? So, but that is not a mechanism. That, that is not a growth marketing tool that is as accessible to the vast majority of companies. You just don't have that cash flow to actually massively incentivize users in the hope to drive short-term growth, right? And also, it, it only, it's only suitable for a certain type of business. It's mostly suitable for the network effect type of business. In other words, once you get users on board, it really increases the value of your entire platform or the value of your entire project, which is the case with a lot of you know telecom or payment networks, for example. So you, in other words, you better have you've got to be like very sticky 
user base. Once they, you can onboard users, and once you get more users, each additional users, their incremental value is should better be going up instead of going down, which which is the case for the majority of businesses, majority of Main Street businesses, actually. So, but but that changes a lot once you have a tokenized incentive program because the cost of issuing a token and the cost of airdropping tokens to your user base to incentivize a certain behavior is much less demanding on your current cash flow in terms of hard cash in US dollar terms that you have to give out compared to the traditional incentive uh, incentive programs where you actually give people rebates or discounts in, in the form of actual dollars or whatever fiat currencies your your country is running on. Right. So that really is a model of you are basically but but again there's a cost, right? The cost is once the users earn that tokens and in the hope to redeem products and services from you in the future, that is cost you that is gonna cost you a future revenue. Part part a portion of your future revenue, right? So you're essentially exchanging revenue tomorrow for the gross expenditure today, which is a fine choice if your business is actually going to be sustainable. But with tokenization, you suddenly you open the door to a lot more opportunities to do growth marketing. Once you can have incentives in the form of a token that ties to directly or indirectly the value or the growth of your protocol or your project in the future. If you can use that as an incentive mechanism to drive growth, it's the marketing expenditure for you for today is going to be much lower compared to give people cash incentives. So that increases the margin of safety <laughs> for your growth in the future. But I also mentioned in the article there are a few criteria or a few, I wouldn't call them like a hard and fast checklist, but generally I think these conditions should be met if the company want to use any kind of tokenization as a growth engine or as a way to distribute values more fairly to their uh, their their um, stakeholders, either their customers or their investors. Okay. So I think there are four criteria. Number one, the most important thing, which most of the Web3 projects do not meet today, is that you should have a product or service that has a viable utility, that has a viable market demand. That is one, right? So you already have some degree of product market fit. You are not leaking users. Your churn rate is low. Basically, you have a good product that people will want to use and people will want to stick to using once they are onboarded. Otherwise, you're going to waste a bunch of tokens. Or, you know, in, to tokens are money too, right? So. Even though token give you more flexibility, it cannot solve the product market fit or your or your user churn problem, right? So that's the number one. Number two is the network effect point. Or if I even if you don't have the network effect, there should be a mechanism or your business model should be the case that your marginal cost is decreasing. In other words, when you serve a hundred more users. When your or when your user count goes up five percent, your cost level should not go up by five percent. Your cost level should go up by a lower percentage. Let's say it go up by three percent, and you get additional five percent of users. Your cost level should go up by additional two percent and one percent and zero point four five percent zero so on and so forth. That that's the declining marginal cost. And you achieve declining marginal cost by having a business model such as a platform with network effect. So 
each to each user that is onboarded brings you marginally increasing value to your network. Or you have like scale economy, for example, telecom network is a typical use case, a typical example. You have a very high fixed cost of deploying a network of telecom infrastructure and hardware, right? So a additional user that you acquired that is using your network, it does not increase your network cost proportionally. Actually, you know, in the long term, the more users you can get on to achieve to, to using the same network, provided that does not hit your capacity, right? You actually have declining cost. So you need you need to have that kind of business model in order for this kind of growth engine to work. And thirdly, you ideally you're in a large addressable market because we talk about one benefit of tokenization is you're you're hoping that it will push your demand up. It will incentivize more usage from the same users and it will incentivize new users to be onboarded. But if you're in an industry or you are in a business where there's only so much demand, no matter how well you do, like for example, if you're serving, if you're brick and mortar business, you're serving a local um, area, um, most of the businesses are that way, right? You have restaurants, you have um, dry cleaners, you have repair shops, all these businesses, unless they're a network or a chain, Otherwise, most of these businesses, they have a finite number of demand, which is limited by the geography that they serve. So these businesses, is, it's just not very suitable for a tokenization model because you don't have a high prospect of actually pushing up your demand by so much more just, just by having a token, right? And fourthly, which is also really important is your business model should allow the token to kind of, you know, reflect the project growth in some way. So to for that to happen, your token needs to have a clear utility. The most uh, direct utility is users can use it to redeem future products and services from you, um, just like airline miles. So you earn miles by consuming the products, by buying the product, but you also earn miles, which can be applied to future purchases, right? So having a clear utility will give a more clear floor price, so to speak. Even if it's not like hard and hard bounded floor price, but it will really help the volatility of the tokens, especially when the crypto market is so young and uh, all the tokens in the space and the entire market is super volatile, right? Having some kind of real utility or real demand for your token from a real use case that is not correlated with the speculative price movement of crypto market is going to help a lot. So this is what I talk about in the, um, in, in, in the article of uh, the prospect for tokenization how the tokenization can help the Web2 or the more traditional businesses, okay? So I got some quite interesting questions on this article, and uh, but a lot of them are quite similar, actually. So let's look at a few of them. A first one from Byzantine Wizard. You are talking about fully centralized currencies. Why is a blockchain or crypto necessary for any of this? So that's a good question. And then, okay, there are actually a bunch that are similar. The next one from Landbacked DAO. Why would they use a blockchain for these tokens? If it's for individual services, they could just regular use regular server. Yeah, at, at a fraction of the cost. And then Jonathan S asks, why would a blockchain be necessary for this scenario? Yeah, should so the short answer is blockchain is indeed not, not necessary for this scenario. You can, airlines do not have their 
loyalty programs on the blockchain. Most of the businesses run traditional t um, loyalty programs. They do not have their points stored on the blockchain. Their points are being being uh, kept in their centralized databases, in a SQL database or in AWS somewhere in the cloud, right? So none of that is necessarily needing a blockchain, and that's very true. But what is not true here? What is uh, the really the differentiating factor or distinctive factor about blockchain? It's not about efficiency. It's not about convenience. It's not even about security because centralized databases can be way more secure. <laughs> With a decentralized blockchain, you see all these uh, proof mechanisms and proof work, proof of history, proof of stake, and all the new proofs that people are coming up with. Really different ways that people actually need to device to actually secure decentralized databases because the security is really a much more concern compared to centralized databases. So that is definitely not a benefit. That is actually additional cost. So what is the benefit? Why do these tokens need to be on the blockchain? They do not need to be, but public blockchains are only networks today, are, are the only type of transaction networks today that are open permissionless, programmable, that's open access that allows anybody to deploy a token on their chain. And also there are secondary markets, um, be it, uh, you know, even it's in centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges, there are actually liquidity in these public networks. So tell me if you know there are any network, transaction network in the world today that have the same features. There's none. Okay, so if you're going to have a token, <laughs> and if you're going to have a token that is tradable, that's going to incentivize people, it needs to be on a public network. It needs to be on a network where it can be traded with other assets. It needs to be on a network where liquidity can be easily provided. It needs to be on a network where there is a unified standard for different types of uh, similar, not similar tokens, but other tokens that maybe serve other purposes of representing different types of assets, but allow them to fall to, to obey the similar type of issuance standards so that they can be traded easily on the same platform. So what other platforms or networks do we have today that fulfill all these requirements to allow tokenization or internet values to happen aside from public blockchains? We don't have them. All we have are these really shitty, really slow <laughs> public blockchains. So that is uh, so 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 that is the answer. Okay, public blockchain blockchains are not needed for tokenization to happen. But the fact is, that's all we have today. We've had what what we are having today. We have these uh, public blockchains. They're decentralized, but they have liquidity. They are open, permissionless. They're programmable. They allow anybody to publish a token relatively with relatively low cost and to have liquidity for their tokens at relatively low cost. No other public networks have these features today, except public blockchains. That's why these tokens will be on public blockchains. Unless there are some other ways in the future, for example, countries can say, tomorrow the United States can say, for example, that they're going to have a CBDC network that is also open and programmable and permissionless and anybody can build on top of their network <laughs> or to have tokens on their network, except it's centralized. So to make sure it's secure and maybe there are some, uh, some, some permission features that you have to apply to access to ensure security or you know, consumer pr protection and so on and so forth. That, that is actually a pretty likely scenario with some of the CBDC networks because 
people are studying the merits and the benefits of public blockchains. And people like the fact that innovations are rapid and innovations are thriving on public blockchains because of the openness and permissionless features. So if a government or a centralized authority is going to have a network, going to create their own network, to adopt some of the good features of public blockchains that we have today, but to preserve these, these features and to make it low cost and extremely easy to use, and they have their distribution channels to ensure there's adequate liquidity on chains and user base already, not on chain, but on their network. Then we can have another, another type of infrastructure where the Web3 and tokenization economy will be run on. So my point is it doesn't necessarily have to be blockchain going forward in the future. I don't know what it will be 10, 20, 30 years from now. But today, to fulfill the promise of uh, internet values, at least at this initial stage, we need a public network. We need this uh, transaction network to have these features that public blockchains have. And we don't have any other type of networks that have these features today. Okay, so that's all. Um, next question from JMO. Decentralization, uh, regarding decentralization not being a defining feature of Web3, if the point of Web3 is ownership, isn't it not important for these platforms where ownership lies to be decentralized? In what way? Will we make sure that ownership is censorship resistant? I don't know why this is a baseline assumption. It seems like this is like a assumption that is rarely questioned by some of the diehard crypto folks that applications need to be censorship resistant. But the thing is, ownership traditionally has been protected not by code, but by law. That's why countries, you know, there are gazillion economic studies out there. Why countries with good rule of law, they thrive economically. Part of the reasons people, at least people, people think, is because rule of law gives better pr protection of ownership of property rights. So it makes it much easier to make investments, decisions, make it much easier to purchase assets and have the confidence to hold on to your assets. So it makes the inve saving investment flow or the cycle goes more smoothly in the economy. So that for many, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, is how property rights or ownership rights are protected. So I don't see why this changes just because we have blockchains now. So yes, so can program protect ownership? Yeah, sure, code can protect ownership, but does it have to be this way? Can, can code completely replace law? I don't think so. Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. So I don't think the tokenization business model and censorship resistant have to be, you know, necessary or sufficient conditions to each other. Um, there are many, many possibilities there. Okay, so even like uh, on centralized networks, you know, your credit card network that you use every day, they handle millions of transactions a day. Your credits or your debits, they're in your account, right? Those are centralized networks. Now, crypto diehards will complain, oh, your banks can take your money away, your, your credit card company can take your money away. But in reality, that happens typically in countries with very, very unstable monetary and fiscal regimes. In Argentina, Zimbabwe, yeah. But in countries that are well-regulated, which is the majority of um, products and services are being sold in the world, and where the majority of GDPs are being created in the world, you usually have good rule of law. So the censorship resistance argument for the sake of protecting ownership, I think this is a little bit overblown, okay? 
Next one, from Ryan G. The most interesting utility token use case I've seen so far is the Helium network. There is a natural bit for farm users that want access to the network, and it's a decentralized way to reward bandwidth providers. So for some of you who are not familiar what Helium is, it's basically this decentralized hardware network for providing access to uh, providing uh, decentralized wireless uh, uh, access to uh, Internet of Things. So basically, the participants, you can run a hotspot, which is a little machine that you install in your house, and it, you know, don't don't ask me about the specific technical details, but basically, if you run a hotspot, you provide um, network access coverage for IoT devices, being, for example, you know, tracking devices uh, that uses IoT networks or um, logistic applications or agricultural monitoring applications, so on and so forth. There are different types of IoT applications that may want to use this uh, wireless network service, and it's being built decentralized way by Helium. And when you run a hotspot, you earn their Helium token. And uh, the uh, tokenomics supposedly is that if you are a uh, Internet of Things IoT application, you would need to buy the Helium token in order to pay for the network usage. So that gives some utility to the token to assure this is not just going straight to zero, <laughs> right? Um, and then um, the network, uh, the hardware uh, infrastructure providers, the hotspot runners, they will earn these tokens. So that's the tokenomics of Helium in a nutshell. So on paper, this is actually a pr very beautiful token design. And I think a lot of businesses, if like Web2 type of businesses, in other words, business that actually have a viable products or services that has a market demand, this is a type of tokenomic models th that they can borrow from. It's very simple and quite elegant. You have, on one hand, your users uh, will earn, the one type of users of your network will earn the tokens. And the other type of network, the other side of your network, will need to buy the tokens in order to access the products and services the other half of the users provide. So this is like a tokenomic, tokenomic model that can be applied to many, many two-way or three-way marketplace businesses that, has, that runs on a network effect model. The problem here <laughs> is that you do need a business that actually have a viable underlying business, viable underlying demand for the product and service, right? So that is the problem that I see with Helium today. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be like this forever, but this is actually a pretty serious problem. So, so the problem is the demand for IoT network is not big and it's not growing nearly as fast as the, you know, the number of hotspots or the number of hotspot network for, uh, for the Helium network coverage is growing. The number of hotspots has been growing like a wildfire since I think 2021 or 2020. I don't remember when they started the Helium token, but because of the power of tokenization, because <laughs> we were also in a bull market where every token price is only up. It creates this uh, incentive for everybody to buy a hotspot, install in, uh, the hardware. It's not like a super, super difficult to do in order to, in the hope to earn tokens and to flip the tokens. So, a lot of people see this as a way to have passive income, 
which is nothing wrong. I run a hotspot too because when it came out, I was I thought, oh, this is a great business model. I'm going to try this. In the installation was kind of a pain, but it was okay, right?、Um, it's manageable. But then, then what happens is the biggest issue is you have so many users on board to providing hotspot access, to providing、uh, to provide hotspot service, but you do not have the similar kind of growth on the other side of your network, on the other side of this marketplace, which is people or、uh, applications that are demanding the usage. <laughs> For this network, which is very very small, so if you look at the general history of how the best marketplaces they grow, they usually you have to grow in a way that the two sides, the growth rates of the two sides of the marketplace, should be relatively equal. That is the way you 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 ensure the sustainability of your network. So, a example is、uh, like、uh, Uber, for example. On one hand, you have drivers. On the other hand, you have people who want rides. If your drivers grow at a much faster speed than your demand for rides, then you have a problem, because then your drivers will lose incentive, and your network will collapse pretty quickly. But if the other side is true, if you have user, if you have ride demand growing much faster than the supply of drivers, you have the other side of the problem. You have people who want rides who cannot get rides, and or rides become super expensive. Then your your riders get very frustrated, and that will also cause your network to collapse. So the ideal situation. Is you have to grow at a pace where you always keep the two sides or even three sides of your marketplace grow at relatively a you know comparable rate. That's how you ensure your growth is steady instead of this、uh, you know giant boom and giant bust kind of thing. And that's the tradit like kind of a established wisdom in how to grow.、Um, Web to marketplace, which is I think completely apply to the any kind of Web three marketplace, because Web three marketplace is the same as mar- Web two marketplace, except with tokenization. But the same business、uh, wisdom that applies to all ar- all marketplaces will apply here, which is you cannot allow one side to grow super fast. That. Like outstrip the other side to such a great extent, and the other commonly accepted wisdom in the Web two marketplace is that when you start, when you just started, you want to keep it small because that is what you want to keep your user use base concentrated, because that is also one way to make sure your demand and supply side of your marketplace grows at a Similar rate. So remember how you know Facebook started, right? Or the、uh, what is the marketplace for dating? Oh, Tinder, Tinder. When Tinder started, they were like、um, it was only in a couple university campuses, right? So that allow you to have active, engaged use. That will allow you to allow your platform to function. On a small scale, but at full capacity. So, and then you gradually expand out a little by little. Okay. So, what you do not want to do is to have the network spread out so thin and cross like a great reach of geographies, very diverse geographical areas, or or different use cases. But in each of the niche that you cover, you don't get that much usage at all. So. This kind of spread and pray approach does not work as well for the marketplace or network type of businesses compared to if you start with a concentrated,、um, you know,、uh, application area or usage area where you can allow you to grow the supply and demand side or grow different sides of marketplaces at similar rate. 
So this is this this is more balanced approach. Okay. So this long-winded <laughs> um, uh, talk is to my point is it is to say that if you look at how helium has grown, it does not obey to any of these good practices at all. One side of the marketplace has grown much much faster than the other. The IoT demand is very small and growing much slower rate. And for the foreseeable future, it's going to grow at, I, th I personally think, still a pretty moderate rate for the next five, 10 years. And but on the other side, you have this super growth fueled by tokenization, which means much of the token rewards today are not from actual demand of the network, but instead from just token issuance, which is not sustainable. Okay. And the other thing is, when you started, like, y they didn't start with a concentrated use case. It's not like uh, IoT for agriculture or IoT for uh, logistics industry or IoT for Apple tracking devices, I don't know. It's like IoT for everything. So this net was spread very thin and very broad. So this is another kind of a typical no-no for growing network businesses. Anyway, <laughs> all I'm trying to say is the tokenomics of Helium is very beautiful. <laughs> but the actual execution of the network, it's a huge question mark to me, okay? So I don't want to see a bunch of helium bulls posting in my comment section, oh, you're wrong, oh, da, 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 because I'm not here to pump your token, okay? So if you post any like a uh, helium bullish comment in my video, I'm gonna delete right away, <laughs> okay? Or <laughs> so, because um, that happens a lot when, when you say anything negative about about any token that people holds. But, you know, again, I run a hotspot, okay? <laughs> so I have a stake in Helium, but at the same time, I'm just trying to be objective to tell you some of the things that I see about this network that I don't think is sustainable, okay? And so now they're also pushing into the 5G network. Uh, they have another decentralized network for 5G cellular data coverage, which now <laughs> supposedly has a much bigger demand than IoT network, right? That part is true, but the thing is, in order to participate in the 5G, network, not 5G network, now you have to buy a new hotspot, which will cost from 1,000 to up to 3,000 US dollars as a upfront investment. And there will be a new token that is uh, issued on the blockchain that, that you will earn for providing the 5G coverage. Now, the good thing is the, the 5G demand for cellular coverage is presumably much bigger than IoT network. But, but, but the bad thing is now you have a much higher entry barrier <laughs> for people to actually join the network. Am I, how many people are going to dish out another 1000 or $2,000 to buy a new device in order to earn a new token in a tanking crypto market? <laughs> uh, think about that for yourself, okay? And if you do not have sufficient network coverage, if you do not have sufficient coverage of net sufficient network providers or hotspot providers for this 5G network, then how are you going to compete with the traditional providers of telecom companies? So again, in any network, there are these intricate chicken and egg problems that you gotta go solve. And right now, from my point of view, Helium is a far away, is still a far away from solving these problems. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> That's, that's, that's about that. That's a very long-winded answer. Okay. Um, next one from Aesthetic Mutiny. 
I've long held the view that utility tokens are the new potential for companies' protocols, but they are nothing new. Many have existed since last cycle, and I doubt next wave adoption will come from real-world companies adopting them. Just my two cents. Okay. So yeah, there's really very few new things under the sun. <laughs> Even though crypto has been new, but still, all the business ideas that 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 are being floated around today they were conceived much earlier last cycle 2017 2018 or even two cycles ago people were talking about tokenization for different types of companies or programs or utility tokens to pay for products and services for decentralized products and so on and so forth they never took off right okay why am i saying now the next cycle they will take off which is my current baseline i think next cycle there is a much higher probability that they will take off why because of the underlying adoption size of crypto m being much bigger compared to a cycle ago or two cycles ago if you look at internet okay internet you have you know uh, throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s, it was a very novelty thing. Not really people that many people use it, but you had a very fast uh, user growth leading into the dot-com bubble. Okay, At the time of the dot-com bubble, about year 2000, you have about 500 million internet users worldwide. And then bubble bursted but internet users still continue increasing. And then on the heels of the dot-com bubble, you see next wave of companies like MySpace, Facebook. I know MySpace is considered a failure today, but it was uh, quite a success for quite a few years. Right? So that tells you, that was the harbinger, tells you what's to come. So you had MySpace, which started you know, right after uh, at, at the winter of uh, after the, the Na Na NASDAQ winter, which is two, 2003, that was uh, um, when, when NASDAQ was like dropped to the lowest low and uh, at the time probably recovered somewhat. And then you have Facebook, uh, Reddit, those all started in early 2000, 2004, 2005. So basically, it was like a next adoption cycle after the dot-com bubble bursted. So if you look at the dot-com era companies, uh, there are a lot of like very shitty companies that obviously do not have a business model or any viable business idea. But there are also quite a few of them actually have a viable business idea that could be successful if there is sufficient underlying demand. But at that time, you didn't have that much demand because the total adoption base for the internet was still quite small at under 500 million people worldwide. So it's like, it, it's like a, you know, in the investment, you have to go with the trend. In, if you're going to invest in something, you need to look at the macro environment. So the, the dot-com companies, they operate in the macro environment of how many users the entire internet technology has, right? So it's very hard for you to bump up that, that limitation, that macro limitation. But as internet user, user base grow after the dot-com bubble, so once you hit that 500 million threshold, 500 to 1 billion user threshold for the internet, that's when the actual applications and companies that eventually gained traction started happening and started to see some success, right? So all of this, keep in mind, it operate in a kind of uh, macro environment for the entire industry, uh, for the entire technology. So why do I think next cycle we may see some real companies having success with tokenization? It's for the same reason. Because we are at a juncture where the total adoption of crypto products is actually quite similar to what we achieved with internet in late 1990s in 
around the time of uh, dot-com bubble burst. So if you look at different statistics, you can measure it by different measures. You measure how many wallets are out there, how many active users on you know, public blockchains, and so on and so forth. And you can also look at survey data uh, from different countries, what percentage of population have used uh, crypto, or so on and so forth. All these measures give you different numbers of user adoption base of, of uh, crypto and blockchain. But from the different sources that, that I've seen, the number that, that I concluded for now is about 400 million worldwide. Okay, So that gets you to about the same, about like a similar, or at least a close to about the time where dot-com bubble, um, uh, of the dot-com era of internet. So we just had <laughs> what I consider the dot-com moment of crypto, the dot-com bubble burst moment of crypto. So of course, we, we, we're not going to see another cycle right away. There needs to be a gestation period. There needs to be, um, I don't see a raging bull market coming back online <laughs> anytime soon. Right? But the thing is, the underlying crypto adoption is still ongoing. You still see more, like every day, there are more mainstream companies interested in tokenize something something, interested in publishing their own NFTs. You still see this being a part of growing public conscious, consciousness. Even though it's not at the expo exponential rate that you see um, in the bull market anymore, but it's still growing. The thing is not stopping, so that's why that's why that's the mac essentially the macro reason of why I believe that we are getting close to the to 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 the time to the juncture as far as the macro picture of the uh, technology adoption is concerned to allow us to have tokenization um, of utility tokens that hash. That, that are actually viable, that can actually support viable products and uh, products and services that help those to grow. Now, I'm not saying you're going to see those uh, start popping up and achieve overnight success tomorrow, but I do see, I do think it's a higher probability than ever that we are going to see some great successes in the next cycle whenever that's going to be. Oh my god, I'm sitting outdoors. I'm being eaten alive by mosquitoes. And I forgot uh, to put on repellent. But anyway, I'm going to finish this and I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to go put on some repellent. Um, so <laughs> I could be wrong. Right? I could be wrong. It could be I could be too early. But I think we are close. <laughs> At least we are closer than ever. Um, all right. Um, it looks like we don't have time for, for the second part of this episode, which, which I, I planned on talking about, which is the investment personality thing. But no worries. We'll just do a new episode for that. But the last one I'm going to answer for, um, for the tokenization part is... Uh, Okay, how many questions do we have left? Let's see. Jeez, uh, we have a bunch of questions left, but we are out of time. So I'm going to answer one more. Okay, then we're done. So one more from Yang. Uh, your economics don't make sense. Where is your secondary market liquidity coming from? And who are the suckers <laughs> buying into your loyalty tokens so others can sell? Okay, so that's why <laughs> that's why I emphasize. You see, like in bear market, everybody's become so cynical, right? I, you know, I can't blame you. But that that's why I said in the article that you you need to keep in mind these tokens need to be built. 
need to be backed by a viable products and service that actually have real-world demand. It cannot be just a reflexive uh, number goes up loop like in the, some of the play-to-earn or DeFi projects that we see. You need to be anchored on a products and service or a series of products and services that are uncorrelated with the price, with a you know, downward or upward price spiral of crypto market. That's one. And secondly, you need to have token use cases. So the token, one use case is your token need to be, you need to able to redeem your token for products and services. An example is uh, you, you look at some of the utility tokens by crypto exchanges. Actually, those have uh, relatively good tokenomics because you, you have these exchanges, even though they are crypto products, but the demand for those exchanges are relatively non-seasonal or non-cyclical. Because even in bear market, there are still a lot of traders trading short-term or they're shorting or they're doing swing trading and they need leverage and they need uh, liquid platforms. So those uh, exchanges like FTX and Binance, they're still making money. Maybe less money compared to bull market, but it's way less volatile compared to some of the very reflexive Web3 projects, right? And these utility tokens, you see, you, you look at FTX and Binance tokens, they basically use their project revenue to buy back some of the tokens as a way to stabilize their token price. So if you look at the price chart of FTT token or even the BNB token, they have outperformed in the bear market, okay? They have outperformed even BTC and ETH which is the largest cap tokens. So smaller caps are supposed to be more volatile, but they're not because they have these uh, buyback mechanisms put in place essentially to make sure the performance of the token is indirectly correlated with the growth of the platform or with the project, okay? So that, 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 that is a way to align your token value was the actual project value. So you need some kind of price stabilization mechanism in there. So either your customer need to pay in tokens, like in Helium's case, right? If they actually have, imagine how beautiful the thing is, if they actually have strong demand for IoT network, then that would be, make it a sustainable token, even though right now they don't <laughs> have that. But applied, what my point is, applied to a profitable and viable business, this is going to be beautiful, sustainable token that benefits the token holders and benefits the projects at the same time. And either that, you, customers pay in tokens or you use future prob uh, profits to, 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 to buy back tokens or you use profits to support liquidity pools. Uh, that's related to the question of this reader. Where does that secondary market liquidity come from? Well, it, it can partially come from the liquidity pools supported by your future profit. So you can, you know, anybody can go start on uh, Uniswap or OneOut, uh, you know, PancakeSwap <laughs> uh, or any uh, DEX. You can start a permissionless liquidity pool with a bit of liquidity. <coughs> to allow two tokens to be exchanged with one another, right? And the liquidity pool does not have to be huge for a start. Remember the example that we gave? That uh, PayPal, they paid people like $100 uh, for every new sign-up. That's a huge cash spend right out of the pocket of the, cr of the project, okay? So if you have a tokenized reward system, yes, you may need to have, you may need to allocate some cash from your treasury to set up a liquidity pool, to seed a liquidity pool, essentially, um, either in DeFi or in CeFi, right? Or you have some investors who is willing to put in some money in a liquidity pool for you. But you don't, it doesn't have to be big. That seed does not have, you have to be as big as if, if your, uh, that cost is not as high as, as if your, your, your entire uh, incentive program is run is paid by hard cash, fiat cash, okay? So um, you can, have, you, you, yeah, there is some cost involved, involved of setting up liquidity pools, 
but it's a, it's a less operating cost compared to running the same program, but running it just on a fiat token or whatever cash token of your country. So, um, so, so yeah, oh, and also keep in mind DeFi liquidity pools, you also attract other people, other participants, other LP, uh, you know, participants to contribute to liquidity pools because they earn transaction fees, right? So the combination of having a, a actual use case for your utility token, and you have, you put some like seed capital, it does need some operating cost to actually have to start a liquidity pool for your token. And also provided that your token price is, uh, you know, supported by Real, real utility, real demand, it will incentivize, attract more people to actually be your liquidity pool provider, to actually provide liquidity for your token in order to earn a transaction fee. Because as long as they know that the uh, impermanent loss that they may suffer from providing liquidity is not uh, gonna be, um, you know, um, too dramatic, right? So they can at least uh, have a positive, positive earnings from their transaction fees. Anyway, uh, I think that's all <laughs> I can do today. Um, I have more questions on this, but we will have to wait for, wait till another time. Okay, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.